Jones, and I'm Editor-in-Chief of Open Forum Infectious Diseases. And joining me today is Andy Borowitz, who is not an infectious disease specialist, but is a New York Times best-selling author and a comedian, and who has been a writer for The New Yorker since 1998. He is author of The Borowitz Report, a satirical column that appears regularly in The New Yorker, and has also written multiple books, articles, and television comedies. He has appeared in just about every venue except a peer-reviewed medical journal until today. So we'll get to why Andy is doing a podcast in a moment for an infectious disease journal. But first, I just want to thank him for joining me. Welcome. Thanks for having me, Paul. Can you start out by just telling us a little bit about yourself, where you're from, how you ended up doing what you're doing, and of course, uh, what medical school you attended? <laughs> I did not attend medical school, much like I suspect the White House doctor. I am not a medically trained professional. I just do have my doubts about him just based on some of his assessments. But I'm again, as somebody who's not a medical professional, I'm just, I'm just a skeptic. I went in for a physical this year, and my doctor did not pronounce me as healthy as that Adonis, who is our president. <laughs> so either I need to switch doctors or the country needs to switch doctors, it's one or the other. But anyway, that doesn't really answer your question. I grew up in Shaker Heights, Ohio, which probably your audience knows as a satellite community for the Cleveland Clinic. Oh, yeah. We uh, went to public school, Shaker Heights High School. And then went on to Harvard College, where I worked on the Lampoon, uh, and where I met you, I should add, in the interest of full disclosure. And then you and I, we, we took different paths. I did not actually attend medical school, but I have been a patient quite a bit. So I've, I've been a part of the medical establishment, and I've participated quite a bit. Before we leave the White House doctor, I wonder about the people who offer their diagnoses on these cases. Like, mm -hmm. as soon as his report came out, there were many, many physicians all over the country who were expressing their opinion on the veracity of this. What do you think about doctors doing that? As you probably know, there's been a big departure from protocol in the psychiatric community because there was something called the Goldwater Rule. I don't know if you're familiar with that, oh, yeah. but, uh, but when Barry Goldwater, who was widely seen when he ran for president in 1964 as a raving lunatic. <laughs> now he seems like Nelson Mandela, I've got to say. But at the time, he was a little bit strident in some of his conservative rhetoric, and people were nervous about him having his finger on the button. But there was something established called the Goldwater Rule, which, if I'm getting it right, was a protocol that said people in the psychiatric community could not opine about the mental health of a political candidate without having treated him or assessed him in person. And so it became this obstacle to people sounding off about politicians who, I should add, are, I think, crazier than the general <laughs> population. I mean, there, there's no doubt about that, that by the time you have become a presidential candidate, you've checked so many boxes for mental illness. Now, you see, here I am, I'm breaking the Goldwater rule all over the place. But just the notion that you think that you should be running the entire country, that is already grandiose and insane. So you can understand why psychiatrists had to have something like a Goldwater rule to prevent them from giving their assessment of these lunatics, because it must be very tempting. They must feel like you know, they are the Maginot line that stands between us and uh, complete 
maniac having a big nuclear button on his desk. Apparently, it, that system has not worked <laughs> so well recently. So this year, actually, a lot of people in the medical community are breaking the Goldwater rule. There have been a lot of open letters signed by psychiatrists. When I think a psychiatrist takes time away from what could be a billable session to sign an open letter, that means they're pretty serious about it, I think. <laughs> yeah. I, it's an indication. I think so, too. But this last time, it was the cardiologists. They haven't asked for infectious disease doctors' thoughts, although I did note somebody write that they thought that, that he might have syphilis. I'm not <laughs> going to speculate about that. So did you ever consider going into medicine? And, and if not, why not? Interestingly, I did. That's not an idle question. My father was a corporate lawyer. And really, growing up, there were no options presented to me other than becoming a lawyer or maybe being a doctor. I mean, doctor, I think, would have been considered a huge, crazy adventure in my family because they really just wanted me to be a lawyer. They wanted my brother to be a lawyer, and he actually went along with that. The, the huge advantage of being the youngest in birth order is that my brother took that bullet <laughs> for me. But I thought it would actually be interesting to be a psychiatrist. You see, we're now we're dovetailing right back uh. to the, the Goldwater rule again, and I'd be so useful now. Although, actually, I'm in a better position now because my profession does not in any way restrain me from calling the president crazy. So that's good. There's that's no right. Goldwater rule. <laughs> I think it's reverse Goldwater rule, which I'm, I'm required to call him insane on a daily basis. But what happened with me was that I really thought that psychiatrists sat in an office and listened to people's stories. So actually, what I was interested in without knowing it, was being a writer. <laughs> because <laughs> what was interesting to me was the stories, and I thought that that would be a really good way to make a living. The thing that prevented me from pursuing this path was that I did know you had to go to medical school to become a psychiatrist. <laughs> and I was not bad at math and science. And they weren't my strong subjects, but I was kind of a tool, so I could fake my way through them and get decent grades. But I remember the moment when I realized that I could not go to medical school in 10th grade in biology. For some crazy reason, we were shown a film of an ear operation. <laughs> and um, you've been to medical school, so this is all like water off a duck's back to you. But I've got to tell you, I was so grossed out. It's one of those moments of lucidity. Like how many times in your life do you have a moment where your entire path changes just like that. I can remember vividly, it's like, okay, no medical school for me. That's not going to happen. You can go back and thank the teacher who showed it to you. Yeah, well, things fortunately have worked out okay. So now let's move on to why you, comedy writer Andy Borowitz, are appearing on this Infectious Diseases podcast. Andy, you are the survivor of a life-threatening infection, uh, something that you were quite public about after the event. So tell us how it started, where you were, what you were feeling, and what initially happened. Well, not only have I been quite public about this, but I've been fairly aggressively monetizing this experience <laughs> over the last eight years. So fortunately, you know, Nora Ephron had a great line that she got from her mother, and it's a very pithy statement. She said, everything is copy, meaning everything is material. So you know, Nora Ephron had a terrible divorce from Carl Bernstein, and that gave us the very funny novel Heartburn, which then became a not-so-funny movie, Heartburn, but still she managed to monetize that experience twice. I haven't gone quite as far as Nora did. In other words, the experience I'm about to tell you 
has not yet been made into a movie. Once I describe it, I think you can see why there might be certain barriers to this being produced as a Hollywood film. It was the fall of 2008, and I had been married for just about 10 months. One day I noticed that I was having really severe stomach pains, and I had been constipated for a few days. So the first thing I did was, what anybody does in the situation is you Google whatever ailment you have and figure out what the solution is. Now, you might say an adult might call their doctor, but <laughs> I actually, I was very irresponsibly without a reliable doctor. I did have a doctor at the time, but I must say he fell short of being a really good source for this kind of problem because I only saw him a couple of times for my annual checkup. And most of our checkup was expended with him talking about his custody battle. So <laughs> it's an interesting uh, way of healing a patient. I don't know exactly what he was going for there, but we were mainly just talking about his miserable divorce and custody battle. So naturally, when I had this intestinal problem, my first instinct wasn't necessarily to call him because I didn't have that kind of time. You know, I didn't, I didn't know how long that would take before we could actually get to my problem. <laughs> So one thing that the internet told us was that if you're having constipation, one thing you want to do is maybe drink prune juice, which is something I knew certainly as a child. So that wasn't sort of a new um, homeopathic remedy. I was quite familiar with that. And they also said exercise. And I exercise very regularly. We belong to a gym. So drank a lot of prune juice, exercised, went on a treadmill, came home, and I lifted up my shirt. And I've got to say my stomach looked sort of like, you know, that very famous Vanity Fair cover of Demi Moore when she was pregnant? <laughs> the naked one. Yeah, the naked one. <laughs> my was really doing, like, I would say a very good imitation of pregnant, naked Demi Moore at that point. So this was quite alarming because that's clear that something's very, very wrong. So my wife actually was very resourceful, and she said, well, what about, you know, your medical insurance? Is there a, a hotline we can call, a nurse hotline? And we did that, and she called for me and described my symptoms. I was kind of at this point writhing in pain on the bed. And the nurse on the other end of the line heard what my symptoms were, and she said, get him to an emergency room immediately. Exactly what you want to hear. <laughs> exactly. Well, we went to New York Hospital, Cornell, and I won't go through the blow-by-blows. I did a story for the, the Moth show about this, and then I later did a Kindle single on the same topic. So... People can go to either of those sources to hear all the details. But basically, after a few doctors of increasing seniority came to look at me, <laughs> by the way, another very bad sign uh, when each doctor seems to have more skills, like I was eventually expecting that Hippocrates, the father of medicine, was going to walk through the door. But I was first given an x-ray, and then I was given an MRI, and after the MRI, a guy came in the office who was the oldest one that I had seen. He was probably in his 40s, and he was a surgical fellow. That is not what you want to hear <laughs> at all when you're patient. Which, which part, the surgery part or the fellow part? I don't mind about the fellow part. The fellow <laughs> part, you can go home soon, your fine fellow would have been a better <laughs> title, really. But surgical fellow, it portends a very bad result. Mm -hmm. What he told me was, and now I'm talking the language of your audience, so I needn't explain it. But in case this thing goes viral, I'll explain it a little bit. <laughs> he said that I had a sigmoid volvulus, in other words, a twisted colon. All of this was 
news to me. The layman who did not go to medical school because he was too grossed out to go is really not even aware of what the colon is totally. <laughs> you don't really know that they mean the large intestine. I, so I was getting kind of a crash course in this part of my body. And, and the surgical fellow said that my colon was twisted, which was why you know, nothing was moving down there. And what they were going to try to do was untwist it manually using a colonoscopy tool. I think I had to sign something acknowledging there was a chance that they could perforate my colon, which is, you know, they kind of have you over a barrel at that point. You're not going to say, no, I'm not signing that. No way. I'm going, I'm not, I'm out of here. You have to sign that thing. So they gave me some morphine to kind of calm me down a little bit. And they stuck that colonoscopy camera up there and they had success. They were able to untwist me. And then the plan was to admit me and have me spend a couple of days emptying out my system as, as you would do before a colonoscopy because I think this was a Wednesday. And on that Friday, they were going to schedule a surgery where they were going to do a resection. My colon was very, very long, which I guess is not that uncommon for somebody with my physique. I'm six foot three and I have long limbs and apparently a lot of my internal organs are long as well. And the colon, I think, was about two feet longer than it needed to be, making it more likely to get tangled up, obviously. So the plan was to do a resection that Friday under perfect controlled conditions. They did that, and they sent me home. And and if it were just this part of the story, you wouldn't be on this podcast. Exactly, because so far <laughs> there's been no hint of an infection anywhere for people who are listening very carefully. There have been some other bad things going on, but no infections just yet. Well, I got home, and I did not feel good at all. I was sort of shivering and shaky, and I would just sort of pull the sheets up to my chin. It was like having a really bad case of the flu. Very, very bad shakes. And then I just didn't seem to get any better. So my wife scheduled an appointment with a surgeon who had done this, and we went to his office. And he took a look at me, and he said, well, you know, we could go to the emergency room now, and we do an admission and see what we can do. But there's a big line at the emergency room, so why don't you go home and come back in the morning and you know, the emergency room won't be so busy. So he seemed actually pretty chill about my condition, which gave me a very false sense of security. However, that night I had uncontrollable vomiting all night. This is a case where my wife and I, we had a willing suspension of disbelief. Yeah. All the things mm -hmm. that we were observing about my body were really terrible. But we had met with a medical professional who had said, wait till the morning. And so we were kind of going with that. Yeah. It's amazing the power that we can have by our words without even knowing exactly what we're saying. Got to be careful about that. Well, yeah. And actually, I've had many, many good medical experiences, and I admire doctors. I'd say the doctor who had all the custody problems, I really never got a chance to assess his medical skills, really. <laughs> he, was, he was in a bad, went through a bad time. But I'm sure the surgeon who operated on me, even though, as we're going to see, there were some problems. I'm sure he's a wonderful surgeon. It's very hard to become a surgeon at Cornell. So, I mean, I'm not trashing him, but mistakes were made. So, <laughs> got there in the morning after a night of throwing up, and I literally stepped off the curb into the taxi, and it was one of those things where everything sort of turned. I was very dizzy, and everything was sort of turned white, sort of like that white light we hear about in near-death experiences. <laughs> Interesting, maybe perhaps worthy of 
further study, got to the hospital. And one thing I had learned from my first experience with the emergency room was I learned how to deal with the triage unit. <laughs> On my first admission, when I just had the distended to me more stomach, when I got to the triage desk, they said, can you rate your pain from one to 10? And I think I said something like six, which is really a mistake because all that does is puts you back in line behind anybody who said seven through 10. So I, <laughs> it was my sort of Midwestern reticence, not wanting to brag about my pain, certainly, just <laughs> be very modest. And I sort of went for a, a sort of middle, mediocre six. And this time coming back, they asked me to rate my pain, and I just went straight to 10. It was like, you know, <laughs> there was no question that that's what I was going to say. And they could also tell that I was not doing well. So they immediately got me in, got me on a gurney. They held an x-ray thing over my abdomen to see what was going on in there. And they started running a tube up my nose and then down my throat to start pumping out the bile that was what I had been throwing up all night. What they found, and this is where all of you infectious disease fans in the audience, where you really start <laughs> perking up, they found that there was actually a problem with my resection, which is that there was some kind of a hole at, at the point where it was supposed to be all sewn up perfectly. So that whole perforation that I was so concerned about uh, the first night had actually occurred. Yeah. And basically, as we can read between the lines, you've got a hole in your colon. Something is escaping through that colon into the rest of your body that you do not want to be there. Yeah, you've got it. You're describing it perfectly. In fact, I wish I've nailed it. I wish you could you could <laughs> teach uh, medical students because describing it using real English rather than the medical terms is a skill that we doctors sometimes lose. Like for example, a doctor might say that you had an anastomotic leak. With yeah, secondary peritonitis, but that doesn't mean anything. The only thing you just said that I understood was the word leak. Actually, so <laughs> exactly, you have to exactly. scale back the other stuff. I think, but yeah, it was most. It was decidedly a leak. I would add the technical term, bad. It was a bad <laughs> leak, and let me say this: my wife totally saved my life in this whole experience. She is the reason I'm talking to you now on this uh, infectious disease podcast. It had always been a dream of mine, and I thought I was going to be hacked down, you know, prematurely at the age of 50, and I would never get to participate in such a podcast. But we have my wife to thank for making me available today. Tell her thank you for me. I will. So um, because we waited all night, and I was throwing up all night, and this infection was allowed to proceed, by the time I got to the emergency room and they were running the tube down my throat and all of that, I was at organ failure. So that's how bad it had gotten. My surgeon came and he said, we're going to have to go in there and this time we're going to have to cut you open. It's like one of those little delicate uh, mm -hmm. uh, procedures with tiny little incisions. We're going to actually have to sort of gut you. He didn't use the word gut, but it was clear to me that it was going to be a kind of messy thing. And we're going to have to get in there and clean everything out and fix this leak. <laughs> I said naively and sort of hopefully, are we going to be able to do that thing that we did last time where <laughs> I have a couple days of being cleaned out and sterilized and all of that? And he said, no, this is an emergency surgery. Yeah. It was everything that we were hoping to avoid the first night that I went into the emergency room. It had become a much, much worse disaster than, than that. Yeah. So my wife went away 
to talk to one of the doctors. I didn't know what she was talking about, but when she came back, and I was sort of in a little tent off the emergency room, and uh, she came back in, and she had tears in her eyes, and I said, is something wrong? Did you get some bad news? And she said, I just love you so much. And it's like, well, I guess I'm really screwed <laughs> because that, that sounds very bad. <laughs> My wife is a journalist, so she always asks the right follow-up questions. You know, I ask one question like, are we going to be able to hang out in the hospital for two days and clean up and they say, no, we got to do it right away. And I'm like, okay, well, you've answered all my questions. But <laughs> my wife is a journalist, and the follow-up question that she asked out of earshot of me was, so what are his chances of surviving this? And they told her 50-50. So I'm glad I didn't know that at the time. Yeah. But this is an example of how hardcore this kind of infection can be, as I'm sure your audience knows. But I went in and I woke up from the surgery, which was an incredibly good sign. I had very irrational optimism that I would somehow survive it, but I mean, maybe a lot of patients do, and maybe that's a good thing. I don't know. But I woke up. It's a big upside to actually still be alive. The only downside was that I had to have an ileostomy for about six weeks. And I've got to say, if anyone in this medical audience can think of a better solution than an ileostomy. There's <laughs> got to be, the ileostomy seems maybe like 14th century technology. There's just got to be a better thing than having a bag hanging from your, from your abdomen. I just can't believe this is where we are in 2018. But I mean, it's pretty primitive. Um, yeah. And it was very hard to live with. Oh, it takes a tremendous amount of education to have people understand how to change them, how to use them. And the plumbing is still the plumbing, and that yeah. is how things are still done. So, Well, one thing that was fascinating, and this is where when you go through a medical experience, you start going into these rabbit holes that you never think you would see in your life. My wife and I still talk about this experience like that. It was like falling into some kind of crazy rabbit hole where you know, your life is upside down and something like changing a plastic bag of, of shit you know, every day just becomes part of your day. It's part of your routine. Yeah. And one thing that I loved, there was a woman who was a nurse whose job it was at, at Cornell to go from ileostomy patient to ileostomy patient and also other, other ostomies as well. But I was seeing her in mm -hmm. my capacity as an ileostomy patient. And her goal was to educate us about how the ileostomy was going to work and bag and all that stuff but also to spread what I would call pro-ileostomy propaganda because <laughs> she actually had, and I wish I'd kept it, in a very glossy, well-produced magazine called The Phoenix. And it was a lifestyles magazine for people with ileostomies. I mean, who knew that such a publication existed? Um, it had page after page of attractive people on picnics, playing Frisbee, going out to fancy romantic dinners, and the only thing that all these people have in common is that we were to assume that underneath their clothes, they had bags of shit hanging from them. Um, <laughs> there were no way impeding this glamorous lifestyle that the Phoenix was trying to make us believe we were all destined to have as well. Well, one thing I'm going to say that I'm going to pick up a little bit of something you've said was that people do learn how to live with them and they can 
lead remarkably normal lives yeah. once they have this sort of integrated into their day-to-day routine, which is something you started to have. Right. So One thing that you see as a patient, and I've had other things in my life, not as serious as this, but I mean, for example, at the end of the summer, I broke my wrist. And so I had months of recovering. I, I really did a number on it. I really shattered it. Now it's recovering very well. I had a wonderful surgeon at the hospital for special surgery in New York. He did a great job. But still, you realize that, too, is an adaptation, like just having a a broken bone is an adaptation. When you're in a hospital as a patient, especially for an extended time, my second admission after the emergency surgery, I was there for 10 days, which seems like a long time for somebody who had really never been in a hospital a day in his life. And one thing they have you do a lot, as you're aware, is they have the patients get up with their IVs and walk around mm-hmm. you know, to avoid all the problems of being too sedentary and yeah. all the things that can yeah. ensue. Exactly. One thing that that little circuit of the ward did, and I don't know if this is intentional or just a byproduct of doing that, is that you see from room to room, really, that you're on a continuum of health and sickness. Mm-hmm. Some people are doing pretty well, a lot better than you're doing. And then there are some people who are doing much worse than you're doing and probably will not leave the hospital successfully. The whole experience was very educational emotionally in terms of, you know, my perspective on health and life and what's important and, and all of that corny stuff. But I did, you know, get a deeper understanding that's not like you're healthy or you're not healthy. It's the continuum. Yeah. I've been fortunate in a lot of ways. I knock wood, I haven't gotten cancer yet. But on the other hand, I got this very freaky thing, <laughs> a sigmoid <laughs> volvulus, which doesn't happen to many people in the population. But on the positive side, even with all the things that went wrong and mistakes that were probably made, I'm still alive and I haven't had any adhesion. None of my organs actually did fail as a result of the infection. So... You know, you can really look at this in terms of a continuum of health and good luck and bad luck. It's nuanced. It's a mixed bag. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. You know, a lot of people, after something so serious, they have trouble with the recovery in ways that are not very tangible. There are things like fatigue and fear about it happening again. Anything like that happen, or you kind of bounce right back? I was very thin when I got out. I had three surgeries because then there was a reversal surgery after the ileostomy. And there was a sort of sweet moment there because that was by far of the three surgeries the least dramatic. It was ambulatory surgery, so I just sort of walked to the operating table. And I had the same surgeon for all three. And um, he said to me, with no irony, and he wasn't kidding around, right before I got on the operating table, he said, you know, you've had a lot of complications with these first two surgeries. So I'm going to be extra careful this time. <laughs> well, that's great. Step up your game. No more texting. You know, you were playing Candy Crush during the game. so glad that you're like just going to really focus this time. That's what we call the learning curve to just cut him a little break too. I think in the first surgery, one of his objectives, which was humane of him, was that I think he was trying to avoid giving me an ileostomy. I think mm-hmm. he was hoping that the tissue was not so damaged that he could just cut out the distended part and sew me up and then avoid that whole episode of having an ileostomy, which, yes, people do live with it, and the people in the Phoenix magazine are all awesome, <laughs> but it's still not optimal, as we would say. Right. So 
I think it came from a good place because I actually yeah. really like this guy, and I think he is a good doctor. I think just things happen. Do you happen to know if he's seen any of your <laughs> pieces on this? Of his many iterations? Well, he knew that I was a writer, and he had seen my work online, so I don't know if he did any follow-up on me, if he was in bed, you know, sort of surfing the internet one night and <laughs> came upon the unexpected twist, my sort of pun-named Kindle single on this topic. He gave me a lot of good laughs in the piece, I've got to say. That line about, you know, I'm going to be extra careful this time, it just killed. Yeah. You know, it was just so perfect. And you couldn't really make up a line like that. It was so wonderful. I editorialized in the story, but in terms of everything that happened when I told it at the moth and the Kindle single was more or less just a transcription of that, I didn't make up a single thing. Everything was completely true. I telescoped events. I cut some things out that were boring, but... I didn't make up a single thing. It was such a bizarre story. And it has one thing going for it that a story needs, which is incredibly high stakes. One problem we have now is that everyone wants to write a memoir. And let's face it, most of our lives are just not that exciting. I mean, we, we you know, my, other than this time that I almost died, I think I've lived an extremely tame uh unmemorable life and I would really be hard pressed to fill up a memoir with interesting things <laughs> other than this one three month experience where I was almost killed. But in terms of the post op experience I had, I think all of my responses after this were really all positive. I was in love with my wife before this experience, but this experience brought us so much closer because as I said, we had been married at this point for about nine or ten months. And people go through medical emergencies with their spouses, especially if you're married a long time. We've now been married 10 years. But if you've been married a long time, you know, one of you is going to get sick at one time or yeah. another. I mean, so you go through those things. But 10 months in, it was like really, oh, wow, we're really, we're really getting off the starting blocks very fast here. And, uh, but that was good because when she and I first got married, we weren't absolutely sure that we would have children. You know, a lot of women, it's a defining thing to them to have children. As a kid, they grow up thinking that they really want to be a mother and they're dying to have kids. And she wasn't one of those women. She was very kind of agnostic. And when we got married, we would categorize in a very clinical way. Maybe there's a 30% chance that we'll have yeah. a child. Mm -hmm. And after this experience, it's just really interesting to see how the DNA <laughs> rises up in you. And yeah. There was no question that we were going to try to have a kid. Mm. Absolutely Interesting. no question. Yeah. Sure enough, two years later, she gave birth at New York Hospital in a completely, I'm happy to report, uneventful uh, <laughs> procedure. Um, no infections. My daughter did not even have jaundice or anything like that. It was a completely antiseptic experience. So one out of two is not bad. That's pretty good. <laughs> So, Andy, thank you very much for sharing your experience with us. I am sure that those who have not listened to your moth performance or watched your moth performance or read your book will really enjoy your recounting what it's like to be the survivor of a life-threatening infection. So I've been talking with Andy Borowitz, who writes for The New Yorker and is the writer of The Borowitz Report, and this is the Open Forum Infectious Diseases podcast. Thanks for listening.